Can I open up to James chapter 4? That's where we'll be this morning. We're going to wrap up the fourth chapter here uh, this week. We're going to talk this morning about wills, and we'll start with, with our will. And uh, I have a question for you as we start off. When was the last time that a plan of yours went really wrong? I don't know how far you have to go back, but mine is fairly recent. This last week, uh, we actually had planned a date for San Francisco, and we're going to meet some friends of ours up there. And uh, we had a plan. We had planned on a time to leave, on what we were going to wear, on on having tickets in our hand, and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and a few things started to happen. Uh, we had lined up my my um, my wife's mom, who was going to be in town. Uh, to be our babysitter, and she came, and, and she was there on time. That went well. Uh, earlier in the day, Ethan was there to pick up his sisters and decided to fall off his bike in a strange way and broke his arm. So uh, we had to take him to the ER uh, right around the time we were scheduled to leave, and we thought, you know, there's still hope. There's still hope for this plan. It's just that what we'll have to do is see if they're going to cast it now. If they're going to cast it now, it's probably off. Well, they decided to put on a soft cast. We were out of there pretty quick. Um, so all of a sudden we're, we're kind of back, you know, back on things. So we, we jump on the road. Of course, now, uh, some other things have gone on with, with us. Uh, the, the traffic has picked up. So now we're sitting in, in dead traffic on the way to San Francisco, uh, and, and sitting there and looking down and, and something else came along that wasn't part of the plan. And that was my, uh, temperature gauge in my Jeep, um, was far to the right. And that's not good. You want that thing right in the middle. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, how does dinner at Ikea sound? So that's what we did. We decided to pull off the road. We're right there at Ikea in East Palo Alto and uh, parked on the roof so that the engine could get nice and cool, pop that lid. We went and had a nice uh, Swedish meatball dinner for $3.99 at I- I- Ikea. Very romantic. We're dressed up a little bit more than uh, most around us. Um, after that, we decided to come down and uh, put water in our radiator <laughs> and uh, found out that we had a cracked radiator. Uh, it was a slow enough crack that we could get home. So we just decided at that point, this plan has failed. Uh, we are going to go with something completely different and not go up to San Francisco. Uh, that's what you call a plan B. Plan B indicates that something went wrong, right? It implies that you have made contingencies. It, it, it implies that there are, some of you are like getting this in stages. It's weird. It's a guy that can't want to bite. Uh, and it just implies that there are things outside of your control, right? And, and, that, and that you have to kind of make, uh, you know, make different plans. Uh, my life is filled with plan Bs. Uh, most people's lives are filled with plan Bs. You, you start off this way and you have to make a mid-course correction. Let's talk about God's will for a second. God's will is both mysterious and it's revealed. One of the things we don't want to do at church is this. We don't want to come and give pat answers. We don't want to come and just say, let me explain God's will in three easy steps. Let me take difficult scriptures that, that some of the smartest people, uh, and theologians of, of, you know, the centuries have wrestled with, and let me give it to you in 20 minutes really quickly here. It's a pretty simple thing. We don't want to do that. So I want to start off this morning by saying that God's will is both mysterious. I mean, who can really speak for God? But God, right? But, but it's mysterious. And it's also revealed, and that's a bit of a paradox, and you need to learn to grow to be comfortable with paradox as you walk the Christian faith. Uh, the, the will of God is both talked about a lot, and it's often ignored a lot. Another paradox that I, that I see in life. God's will is sometimes attached to our plans like some sort of a, you know, a superstitious, supernatural power boost, you know, like, we make our plans and then and then kind of say it, you know, half-heartedly, uh, if the Lord wills. 
But it, but it's also said really sincerely that we would make a plan and then just say, of course, this is all subjective to, to God's directing. Today, uh, we want to we want to look about and think about how these two collide and coincide in our lives. We want to plan with God at the center. It's almost as if James is remembering a proverb that he was no doubt taught, and as he's writing this letter, it's almost like this proverb is on the forefront of his mind's, uh, mind as, as, he's, as he's talking. Look at Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're going to see both planning and God directing in this text that we're going to look at this morning. Last week, James warned against the pride that we see in slander. When you see someone, yourself included, slandering someone or being critical of someone, it's pride coming out. It's you being over that person. And not only are you doing that, but you're actually slandering the law. And you're slandering the law giver. So it's a real warning against pride. Today, James is going to warn against pride that is seen in presumption, uh, presumption, being presumptuous. We're going to learn not to fight God's plan, but go with God's plan. How do you trade in something called self-confidence, which which many of you have been taught is a great thing and you've been trying to nurture and develop for a long time. How do you trade in self-reliance and independence for something that is foundational to the Christian walk, which is faith and dependence on God? Christian life is one of learning to trust. Now, we could point to many things that mark a genuine living faith in this whole series, Do or Dead, is this. James is saying, is your faith active and doing and alive, or is it dead? Because if it shows up only in your mouth, if it shows up only in your mind, if it shows up only as a tacked-on little quip at the end of things, Lord willing, then it's dead. Just from the book of James, I jotted down a few. These are marks of a genuine living faith. Joy in trials, humility, repentance, true love for others, separation from the world, passion for God's glory and prayer. Those are things that if you see those things showing up in your life, you could say, wow, it looks like there's a genuine living biblical faith there. But maybe to summarize all of those into one thing would be this. It's the person that delights in doing the will of God. If you find yourself delighting to do the will of God, then guess what? These other things will take care of themselves. You will experience joy in the very midst of trials. You will be humble. You'll see that fruit growing in your life. You will have a passion for God's name and his glory because you're delighting to seek out and do his will. And so these other things follow. So maybe more than the, than the others, uh, joyful delight in doing God's will characterizes genuine living faith. Just write down John 5.30. You can look it up later. But Jesus said this. He, he summarized his purpose statement. Purpose statements were really big in the late 90s. Uh, churches caught up right around 2000 to that. And so everyone had a purpose statement, right? You'd walk into, you know, Jiffy Lube, and there's their purpose statement, you know, kind of right up there. And Jesus came, and and if I could summarize Jesus' purpose statement, he said it in in John 5.30, he says, I'm here to do the will of God. Really simple. I am here to do the will of God. So to be Christ-like is to come and do the same. Here's the truth this morning that I'm building this off of. The truth is that God has a plan. God has a will. So that's just a foundational truth that we are building on it. Now the question is, 
how do you and I, as finite beings, how do you and I, as strugglers along this, this journey called life, how do we respond to that will? That's what we're going to look at, and that's what James addresses. Look at verse 13, James chapter 4, and we'll read our passage this morning. It says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're going to see a few wrong responses I want to highlight and one correct response that he points out. The first one is this. Don't foolishly ignore God's will in your plans. I don't know if this businessman in our text today sounds familiar, but I've heard this guy a lot. And he's in the church, he's out of the church. This is the one who plans and articulates the plan completely devoid of God talking about all that's going to happen, speaking about these different things. Look at the confidence of the man. I mean, who is it that sets the the time frame, today or tomorrow, the location, such as that city, duration, one year, the enterprise is going to be that they're going to engage in business. The objective is to make a profit. Who is it but the guy, the man with the plan, right? He's the one setting all those things out. I don't know if you've heard this person before, but they're all around us. God is even on the radar. This extends beyond business, by the way. If you're not a business person, don't think you're off the hook. Home buying, relationships, vacations. Again, churches do this. I just came back from a pastor's conference. Pastors are not immune to this just because they work in a church. You, you, you'd be amazed sometimes to hear a group of pastors get together and, and to listen in and go, where's, where's, the, where's God in this? Where's God in all this planning and this growth and this excitement that's going on? Is this any different from the business down the street? Now, note that that good planning is not under attack. I want you to hear that. Some of you are planners, and you're like, you're ready for a fight. I don't want to fight you on that. Good planning is not under attack. That's not what James is attacking. What he's attacking is good planning, or any planning, that's devoid of God, that leaves God on the sidelines. Now, in the South, I didn't grow up in the South, but I've been in the South before, and I think in the South, people give kind of a polite nod to God, in their conversation, they will bring him in, the good Lord, the good book. I mean, they'll say these kinds of things. They'll, they'll kind of give a nod while living as practical atheists. So they'll live as if God doesn't exist often, but culturally, it's just kind of accepted and normal to kind of insert those phrases. Not here. I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago who had just moved here from a different part of this country, and he said, man, I feel like I'm living in the, in the lion's den. I'm like, wow, I was born and raised in the lion's den. Do tell. Like, what do you mean? And he just started to talk about it, work, you know, all these things that are really ungodly. And they're spoken of with, with not a blush in sight. Not, not a, not a hint of God or, or any conscience to, to, to those things. I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's perspective a little bit. You know, someone just coming from a different part of our country saying that about this location. Here, this kind of bravado is applauded and even emulated. It's like, how can we copy that? How can we be like that person? 
But do you hear the arrogance of this person? Laying out a plan and speaking as if, as if they're the one who's omniscient. They're the one who is in control. These are attributes only rightfully ascribed to God. Turn in your Bibles. You can leave your finger there, but turn in your Bibles over to the Gospel of Luke. So hang a left for a few books. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this little story. And sometimes stories uh, grab our attention and kind of kind of capture a truth in, in a different way. And Jesus loved to tell stories. He was a great te- storyteller. And Luke 12, verse 16, he tells a story. I want you to keep the passage in mind that we just read in James. Then I want you to follow along in verse 16, Luke 12. And he, Jesus, told them a parable, which is a story teaching a truth. Saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. He's got a plan. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you ever talk to yourself? I do. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And we have seen this lived out in our city. Let me offer you two quick reasons. These are a little side reason of why it's a bad plan to ignore God. The first one is this. You are not in control. If you're taking notes, I want you to write three things that if you could go back one year, last September, fall is kind of the season of change and things are getting back going sometimes and all that. List three things that have been the biggest change in the last year. Maybe a different way of thinking about it is this. If you journal, go back and read your journal a year ago. What were you talking to God about? What were you praying about? What were you concerned about? Now think about the three biggest changes in the last 12 months. How many of them came as a surprise to you? How many of these things on your list were you in control of? And I don't mean a little bit. I mean like really in control. You could make it go one way or the other. These are the three biggest changes in your life in the last year. Here's my bet. I'm not a betting guy, but if I were, here's my bet. You wouldn't be in sovereign control of any of those. And probably many of those came as a surprise. I went back, and here's my big three. One year ago this month, my dad was diagnosed with stage 2 lung cancer. That's a bomb, because he was a very fit and healthy guy last summer. One year later, he's beaten that cancer, and it's come back with a vengeance. And he's now in stage four. And had a great time with dad on Friday. Um, but my father is prepping to end the race. And he's prepping to end it well. That's, that's number one. The second thing that happened a year ago is our daughter Kaya was home from Ethiopia. And she was in complete emotional shutdown mode with me. Probably for the first three to four weeks, my daughter would solemnly look at me or not look at me. She wouldn't even look at me. She was just in shutdown mode. She was in pretty big shock of being transferred from one you know, institution into a family. That was a year ago. 
The third thing that was going on a year ago is our son Eli was stuck in an orphanage with no end in sight and only paperwork mountains ahead, and we were praying to the God who can move paperwork. Now, all three of those things in my life, I had zero control over. All three of those didn't go according to my plan. I had planned something different. But it made me look and realize and just see things change. Things change is another way of saying you're not in control. You're not in the know of of things. Many people live life under the delusion that they are actually in control, that they are actually in the know. You don't need to raise your hand, but some of you do this. I do this. We go to the experts to make predictions. How should I invest my money? Where should I go on vacation? What's the best car to buy? What's the best microwave to buy? Let's go look at the experts and talk to them about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but aren't you amazed? The older I get, the more I realize the experts don't know a whole lot. The experts aren't that much more in control of things than I am. They might specialize in a field and give me some useful tidbits, but they certainly aren't in control. Just in our city, I thought about the idea of bursting bubbles. We have bursting bubbles in the dot-com companies. Go back and, and, and research some of the things that used to be the big rage that if you took your company name and you put E in front of it, you know, so like we're church, e-church, ooh, can we invest in you? People just started pouring money into that. Or you added dot-com to the end of it. Everyone wanted to throw money at it. Well, it's, it's interesting they use these terms, but it's a bubble. Right? Here today, gone tomorrow. Life's a whisper. And, and the, the dot-com companies burst. How about the housing market? How about the tanked investment strategies? All these things just in our city that have affected you and your friends and your family and your neighbors are revelations that say we are not in control. And the experts really didn't know that much more than we did. They can serve as a gracious wake-up call to us that things change and that we're not in control. Probably one of the first verses I ever memorized was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you know it. Listen to it read to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Verse 7 says this, Be, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. That is, those three verses run in exactly the opposite direction of where this city and this Bay Area is running toward. Opposite. You will feel like a fish out of water if you live by these three verses. Now, by the way, here's a little tiny hint. Remember I said that God's will is both mysterious and revealed? Let me just, let me just go back to those three verses and show you that God's will is in neon lights and readily available to people. You don't need a life coach. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a Greek teacher. You don't need anything. Just listen to this. Trust, do not lean, acknowledge, be not wise, fear, turn. Do you hear all those? That's God's will for your life. What's God's will for my life? Start with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you can read, it's right there in front of you. It's readily available for you. Start learning there. Start walking right there. Now, not being in control actually leads to bold action, good planning, and adventurous living. It's just that you're not any uh, under any delusions about who is orchestrating everything. I, I thought about how beautifully this was illustrated with this church, Trinity Church, in New Orleans. They had just created a five-year 
vision plan that was complete with 3D pie charts detailing how they would successfully carry out the mission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples in Covington, Louisiana, right near New Orleans. Now, as a mostly white, upper-middle-class, affluent church, it reflected those strategies and those values, even as seen by the 3D pie charts in a nice, neat, organized binder that they had just produced. But by 11 a.m. on Wednesday, August 24, 2005, the 11th named storm of the season was officially called Katrina. Some of you remember all of this quite clearly. By Saturday, August 28th, it was a Category 5 storm and being hailed as the storm of the century. Those who grew up there and, and, uh, and lived through this were being told to evacuate. I remember sitting and wondering, why didn't everyone evacuate? Well, when you go down and be on the ground, what you realize is this. Some people don't have the means to evacuate. If they evacuated every time they said to do it, you'd have to take about six unplanned vacations out to your relatives in the country or to a hotel room somewhere every time they said to evacuate. Some flat out don't have a car. Some don't have the means to stay in a hotel once they, once they do get somewhere. So some evacuated. And kind of like watching a train wreck in painful slow motion, this scene played out on our, on our screens for the next several days. Here's what went on. Levees broke. Rescue was delayed and plans failed. Three of our nation's states declared a state of emergency. I don't know if you've ever done that in your own life as governor of your life, but you just call out, I need help. 25,000 people by this point are living at the Superdome, a football stadium once used for entertainment. Things had changed. Even for those who had been there, I talked to a late 80s, early 90-year-old person who'd been through a lot of storms, lived their entire life in a 112-year-old house. Never seen anything like this before. How about for this church, Trinity Church in New Orleans? Every person in that church had, had loved ones and friends who had suffered death, illness, or loss. Many of them had to pack up and move. They just had to leave. When a tree falls over your house and destroys all of your stuff, you can't stay there. There wasn't resources. So they lost a bunch of their congregation that way. How about their vision plan? I know from the past that vision plans like that represent months of hard work and debate and compromise and prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord and saying, God, what do you want us to do? Gone. Cute little pie charts, gone. In its place, God began to to, to reveal his plan for their church. And here's what unveiled. Ethan and I got to go firsthand to see the mighty hand of God at work through this church. First of all, thousands of volunteers would begin to stream in in the days after the hurricane for years. This is a team of, of college students, mostly college students, from, from Valley Church that, that helped plant this church. We were there two years after. This is August of 2007 now. And you can't see it, but there are hundreds of people in this parking lot that are there to serve. These people needed close access to the devastation and a place to sleep and eat and brush their teeth, etc. They took their large sanctuary that was comfortably decorated and had pews and all of that. They ripped the pews out and they began to use their sanctuary every single day of the week when it wasn't being used on Sunday mornings for church services for just this sort of thing. 
It was the perfect place for large groups of people to come and eat and sleep and prepare and do those kinds of things. The pastors and congregation of this church became focused on being the hands and feet of Jesus to those who were hurting. Every Wednesday, as you were working at your job site, wherever it was, you would invite those people that you've been talking to back to the church for a Wednesday night meal and worship service. It was packed. Two years later, every Wednesday, from all walks of life, it looked like the DMV in there. Awesome. It was so cool. And you're sitting there enjoying a meal and having a service, and when the preacher preached and when the songs were singing, man, the tears just flowed. That was Wednesday night. Friday was roaming chili dog in the hood day. Now, what happens is, see this truck? We're all in this truck. There's a giant barbecue. They're blaring Christian rap music right at the end of the streets. It's one of the most infamous projects, they call them. Low-income government housing that the cops wouldn't go into. Here we are roaming the streets in broad daylight that I learned from a shopkeeper later on. You would not have done that on August 23rd of 2005. You would not have done that. It would have been completely unsafe, and I promise you, you wouldn't bring your kid there. But what you do is you pull the truck up, you start serving chili dogs and hot dogs to people. I can assure you this didn't show up in their five-year vision plan. That wasn't one of the pie charts is, let's do roaming chili dog day through the projects of New Orleans. But here, that's what God had for them every single Friday. Two years later, the death, loss, and, and eternity were on the thoughts of all of those who lived there. We got to wander through the streets and just talk with people. This shirt became known as those are Christians who were there to serve and love on New Orleans. And as we'd walk down the street, people would literally outside their car window go rock on. You know, they'd give you the thumbs up. I don't know if they said that in the South. They said something different, but I didn't understand it. But I translate it for Californians. And people just grew to understand, man, these were, these were the people. Here's, here's one of the things. You, you look at all of this and you say, where's God in this? Where's God in a natural disaster where hundreds of people lose their lives and billions of dollars are, are torn apart in a second? Again, I don't want to just give some pat answer. But let me give you one little snippet that I learned that I didn't hear on any news story. And I watched a lot of news over this because it was fascinating to me. I knew I was watching history. You go down there and you talk to the pastors and the, and the people of Urban Impact Ministries, which is down in the Ninth Ward District, which, is, which was completely underwater. He said this, there were so many charlatan fake churches around here, hundreds. They numbered in the hundreds. Remember, this is the South. You just keep giving that altar call and that offering call until your, your offering basket fills up, I guess. Charlatan churches that were not preaching the gospel, that were not there motivated for the love of Jesus Christ and to give their lives away. Hundreds, over a hundred, he said. Post-Katrina, the only ones that stayed in this church's estimation, and there were only a handful, were those who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who were there to bring the gospel. And I looked at that and thought, wow, the gospel shines brightest in a really, really dark place. All of a sudden... It's a powerful testimony to be able to just go and be the gospel and see, wow, your, 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 your message is clear. It's clear every Wednesday night. It's clear every Friday when I'm eating a chili dog in front of my house talking and praying with you. 
As a side note, I don't necessarily recommend this, but a good place to meet a future bride or husband, two of the people on this trip are getting married this January, two college students that were serving together. Man, great place to meet your future husband or wife on a missions trip, serving the Lord Jesus Christ in a place that feels as close to hell as I'm ever going to get, about 110 in the summer. Not fun. There you are, potentially meeting your future bride or husband. All right, not only do things change, but your life is brief and frail. Now, I understand that asking for volunteers after making the statement, your life is brief and, and frail, is uh, is just a little bit risky, but I'm going to do it anyways. I need three people uh, to come up here, and I need Jesse to be one of them. That's just going to be fun. <laughs> Jesse, come on up. Uh, Lindsay, why don't you come on up? And uh, and Nicole in the back, why don't you come on up? All right, Um You're the biggest, so I'm going to give you this one. All right, I want you guys, see, this is why no one sits in the front row at Neighborhood Bible Church. Okay, I want you to point it this way. Um, you know what, let's not point it that way. Let's point it over this way more, kind of in this, in this region right here. Um, have you guys ever been involved in, uh, in mist racing? No? You, do, you, do you know the rules or anything? Okay, I don't either. Um, Here's what I want you to do. You're going to get, you're going to get a chance to, to squirt your thing once. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and see whose miss stays the longest. Okay. Are you ready? On the count of three, you're all going to miss it once. One, two, three. Okay. Now you can make adjustments to your little nozzle if you want. If you dare. We're going to try that one more time. Okay. You're, you're judging this, by the way. So you need to see who's, who's winning. Okay. We're going to do it a second time. All right. On, on your mark. Get set. Go. Okay. All right, any adjustments? You, you, get, you get one more shot. Okay, she's adjusting like crazy. You better watch out, Mindy, because I think she, she may have just adjusted the wrong way. All right, one more time. Here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> All right, put, put your misters down. Give these three a hand. All right, so who won? Jesse won, okay. Who was in second place? Lindsay. Lindsay was in second. You guys concur? Okay, someone got you wet, so they're not doing very good. Okay, now, now here's here's the point of mist racing, though. Who really cares who won? I mean, really. I mean, Lindsay does a little bit, you know. Jesse's competitive; he's a little bit excited about winning. But but if we could get a picture, it would be like yippee! Jesse got ninety years. Lindsay came in at at, at seventy, let's say. And I'm sorry, Nicole, but you know, you only got 30, 30 years. Sorry, it's a sad, it's a sad day. But do you see the picture? Like that. That's what James just called your life. That's what James just called my life is a mist. It's brief and it's frail and we need reminders of that. We need to be reminded that that's what our life is. And to have silly comparisons. Like, I really hope I get the 90 years. I'm living for that 90 years. I spoke last week with my 96-year-old grandmother. She's as spry as I can remember. But 90 to 70 to 60 to 20. To us, it just seems like a giant gap. There it is. It's a mist. And to, and to fight your whole life 
for that, for that bonus particle that's, that's there before it disappears. When you see it this way, it's silly. Now, this can be really depressing. Ecclesiastes in Psalms laments, calling our days on earth, get these, get these pictures, a shadow, withering grass, and field flowers that rise up beautiful only to wither in the afternoon heat. James here is calling it a mist. It can be depressing, right? But it can also be invigorating. It can be invigorating to realize that there's more to this life than just scraping by, just getting a living going, just getting some things going on, enjoying as much beauty as I can, trying to resist all the ugliness of life that I can, and hurry up and die. It's invigorating to realize there's, there's, there's more to this life than all of that. I wrote much of this sermon up at Hume Lake. Ben and Laura and I got to, um, and Becky got to go up to a pastor's retreat up there. And Hume Lake is a spectacular place, not just for its beauty, but for its spiritual impact. To, to get an idea, in, in one day, I took a bike ride with my wife out to a place called Wagon Train, where I went for elementary school. And you sleep in covered wagons. And it's been just such a giant part of my spiritual upbringing up there. On the same day, I'm having breakfast with this guy. We get talking. He's a pastor in Santa Rosa. He says, where are you from? I said, I'm from San Jose. His face goes, oh, man, I, I grew up in San Jose. We got talking some more and realized there were connections to Los Gatos Christian Church. We got talking some more. And I looked at him. And I said, you're Pat Gordon. He said, yeah, I am. How'd you know my last name? I said, you were my camp counselor in fifth grade. <laughs> And he goes, whoa! He was completely bald. Uh, I said, I guess we both look a little different, huh? <laughs> but you never forget your camp counselor. He was 19 years old. And here we got to connect and, and be in this, in this spiritual place. It was so, so fun to be up there. But I'm, I'm looking at this scene. I'm sitting on a little chair right now, writing out some of these thoughts. And I said, I just have to take this and show you guys what I'm looking at as I'm thinking about this. I have been going to this place since I was a little kid. As I'm writing this and looking at this, I'm now 41 years old, and I'm looking at those granite formations and these trees and that lake. These very things, they're going to be there long after I'm here. As I'm looking at this, I realize there's a mist that comes on the water in the early mornings and the late evenings at Hume Lake. And I realize that when I look at this scene, that's my role. I'm the mist. That's my life. So it begs some bigger questions of me. This kind of passage uh, ought to drive us to these kinds of questions. What am I living for? What kind of legacy am I going to leave? What am I doing with my time on earth? How am I stewarding this life that God's given to me? The weather's starting to change just a little bit, and pretty soon you'll be able to see your breath in the morning. And here's my challenge to you as you're walking into work, as you're walking to school, and you breathe out a prayer, and you can actually see your breath for an instant, for an instant, realize that's your life. Say, God, help me to steward this mist well. Thank you for it. Thank you for this mist I've been given, but help me to steward it well. Psalm 90.12 says this, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, some ignore God's will, but others brazenly reject it. Look at verse 16 of James. Back to James now. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So the second wrong response is this. Don't arrogantly reject God's will in your plans. If the first camp live as sort of practical atheists, this second camp live as 
self-theists. In other words, leaning on, planning on their own wit, charisma, charm, hard work, and skill to get things done. You tempted to be one of those? I think the older you get, the more you realize that's a bad plan. But I tell you, especially young upstarts, man, that's where you think it's at. I know this God thing's got to be good, but I've got a lot of hardworking passion in me. And I've got, I'm filled with vision. <laughs> and so people just start, start leaning on their own selves for things. Isaiah 47, you don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 47, 7 through 10 are four verses of Babylon just boasting. Just boasting in, in their own ability to do things well. And as we watched the, the Middle East spring erupt, and we watched decades-long tyrants who sat cozy in their beds a year ago, ruling with an iron fist, thinking they were untouchable, and that the next decade was me like the previous decade, it reads exactly like Babylon of Isaiah 47. And the judgments that you read about in the Bible are exactly what you watch on your TV screen. Rulers, this is graphic, but you see rulers being dragged through the streets, shamed like a dog. People venting their anger on the corpse of a dictator that was not long ago ruling from a palace, untouchable. Things change. Life is frail. And when you arrogantly reject plans, that's where it heads. Here's what James says. All of that is evil. All that boasting, it's evil. If you make a habit of telling all that you're going to do today, tomorrow, and the next year, it's evil if it's void of God. Boasters say this, that God helps those who help themselves. That's almost an American mantra. The Bible says this, that God helps those who can't help themselves. The weak and wounded, the poor and needy, and those who are slaves of sin. You know what a slave of sin says? I can't help myself. Right? That's what a slave of sin says. That's what an addict says. I just can't help myself. That, that couldn't be a more true statement. That's who God helps. Ben and I are reading a book called Replenish by a pastor named Lance Witt. And he says this, having served in ministry more than three decades, I find myself less enamored with accomplishment and the bravado that often accompanies it. I am more drawn to men and women who live well than those who live big. And what he's lamenting in this particular part of the book is how few people in their twilight years are really living well, are really faithfully finishing the race that God's given them. Don't ignore God in planning and don't reject Him, and certainly don't disobey Him. That's the third response, is, is to willfully disobey God. 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I don't know if you've ever been bummed that, you're, that you have a new set of knowledge because it's made you accountable now or responsible now. But there have been times in my life where I used to think it was a silly thing, but I used to, you know, not often, but I would go and hit golf balls at a park. I'm like, ah, oh, it's a, you know, cheaper than driving range. And then uh, my brother-in-law informs me that's illegal, you know, by city code, such and such and such and such. And that was one of those things where I was like, oh, bummer. Like, you know, I, 
I could do that earlier, and it wasn't sin. I, I didn't even know it was. I was still breaking a law, and Jesse could have come by and arrested me, uh, you know, for, for, for doing that. But now that I knew that it was a law, now I, I was responsible for that knowledge. And this is one of the reasons we talked about why, why teachers would be judged more strictly, is that they're accountable for more knowledge. Where you're there making a computer chip at work all day, I'm studying the scriptures. That's a scary thing. It's a frightening thing. And it's a, it's a responsible thing to say you're now responsible for this knowledge. Now, for him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, for him, it is sin. There's sins of commission, which is doing what's wrong. That's committing a sin, right? Commission. But there are also sins of omission. Sins of omission simply is failing to do what is right. Now, there are some people who are deluded enough to think that they have not committed any sin. They've not broken any of the Ten Commandments. They somehow read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus unpacks the Ten Commandments, and they still say, nope, I haven't committed any of those sins. Then this verse comes along and brings a whole new reality check to that person. Because it says, wait a minute, not only do you have to keep the law perfectly if you're priding yourself in that, but you have to do all the good you know to do. Isn't that devastating to the one who's confident in their self? It is. Once your eyes are open to a particular need, some of you are passionate about different needs than I am. And you're like, man, when my eyes were open, when I finally just saw the need, you just want to scream like, there's, 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 there's so much need. God, what are you going to do about this? And usually the way the Holy Spirit's worked in my life is it's turned inward. And he said, I'm going to use the one who's fired up about it. Get to work. <laughs> So sins of omission and sins of commission, so many different ways to sin, and it leads straight to the gospel. It really points to this thing of saying, you can't save yourself by living a good enough life. The whole point of the gospel, in fact, is to reveal and show that you can't live up to the gospel and that you need a savior. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is the right way to respond to to God's plan? It's found in verse uh, 15. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. There's the starting point. You can thank God this morning that you've got breath. You could ask God tomorrow that you'd keep breath. And if you did it, you'll, you'll do his will. So if, if we, uh, we, we will live and do this or that. So the, the, the final response is to delight in seeking and submitting to God's plan. I threw the word delight in there because of the fact that there's a several places in Scripture that point this out, but it's one thing to obey out of duty, and that really leads to religion and, and cold-heartedness, and we see this in families where one sibling can do something grudgingly and, and out of duty, and another one could joyfully say, you know what, my parents don't have anything but for the, for the best in mind, and so I'm going to do this joyfully. I love my parents. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to do this joyfully. God wants us to delight in seeking and submitting to his plans. I thought of three passages uh, that speak to three truths I want you to walk away with this morning and know. The first is this, that God is for you and not against you. Write down Jeremiah 29.11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. But what about when it doesn't make sense to me? Praise God, you're realizing that you're not sovereign. 
That's a great thing. If every command made sense to you, it's probably man-made. That's just the way it is. God loves you. He's for you. He's not out to hurt you. Number two is that God is in control. Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. Maybe the best application I could tell you to do this afternoon is nothing. Take your Sabbath rest. Stop doing. Don't prep. Don't you dare prep for Monday morning work. Just stop. Just be before God and know that He is. He's in control. You can't see the changes. Your life is but a mist, but it's forever in Him. There's a great sign up at Hume Lake, and it just says this. As you walk into this forest, it says, God is. What a great truth to just look at and know. Number three is this, that God is working. What's He doing? He's preparing you. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. God is for you, God is in control, and God is working. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to close uh, singing a couple of songs, taking up our offering. I want to give you, I, I talked to, uh, talked to a student, talked to a student in our church. And I thought, um, I thought, I bet you anything this student would get to where I'm going as an application just off the top of his head because I knew this student. And I said, I said, how do you know God's will? You're a Christian. You love Jesus. Tell me, how do you know God's will? Almost without thinking about it, this student landed on, on these, these things I'm about to tell you. The first one I wrote down is to pray. How do you cooperate and go with God in his plan? You pray about it. Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your, your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's a good prayer to start with. Second thing the student said is you should probably read your Bible. That seems like a good plan. My second one was read, memorize, and soak in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 48. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Do you know that God's written word and God's will are so closely linked in Scripture? And if you think about a king, a general, a coach, or a boss... Their word is linked to their will. A boss will send a memo, and that's how people know what the will is. A general will give an order, and that order is repeated and talked about and referred to often because that indicates his will. A king will give an edict, and the people will post it and read it and talk about it and quote it to one another. So to know God's will is to know God's word. And this third one, they didn't exactly come up with, but I put this. Live and love well. Obey what you know today. And walk in the family that God's given to you. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. You've been given a church family here that is seeking after and loves the Lord and loves you and is looking out for your life.
coming and saying, look, I'm wrestling with a decision. I'm rang with word. Would you just come and don't tell me what to do. I've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's who I'm following. But would you just walk with me through this? Would you begin to pray with me on these kinds of issues? Would, would, would you understand that I'm giving you permission to speak into my life and point out things? Am I missing this somehow? And just inviting people in. Next week, we're, we're going to be taking sign-ups and really an on-ramp to our new community group season. I want to challenge those. I would love to see. I, we are praying for a, just an unprecedented 90%. We had 70% of our people in community groups uh, midway through last year when we checked. We've intentionally not done a lot of stuff to highlight those two kinds of things. Community groups, by the way, are but a springboard to further fellowship and further service and further worship together. Don't miss out on that opportunity next week to come and be a part of that. In the back is this little thing. It's called Questions for Life's Gray Areas. I had printed this up for a different sermon years ago. But it's seven things that was given to me in high school by my girlfriend's dad, who was a pastor. I kept it in my Bible, and I wanted to pass it on to you. There are some things the Bible just doesn't speak plainly to that specific issue. Brand of toothpaste is one of those. I haven't found anything in there. This right here will sit there and say, man, when you're confused about what to do, these are some guidelines, some biblical principles that, that, that can govern and guide and share some insight. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, how you will and work your purposes in us. I thank you, God, that we can look in reverse and so often see what you were doing. Would you help us to lean on those times that we would trust you moving forward? God, just now as we uh, as we sing, as we respond to you in uh, the giving of our tithes and offerings, uh, as we walk out of this building, I pray, God, that we would do so with plans wisely in place and hearts and minds knowing that you're the hub, you're the foundation, and we submit all of them to you and say, we've made a plan, now you do what you will, and we'll trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.